my blessing and privilege to be able to share the word with you this morning. I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, first of all, because those last two verses of chapter 2 are actually the portion of Scripture that we'll be looking at, chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, and then completing this portion of the text with verses 1 through 3 in chapter, in chapter 3. This portion here begins with us where it says, and now, verse 28, opens up a new section and kind of wraps it and completes it there in verse 3 of chapter 3. There are so many wonderful truths here. You could dig into this well, and I found myself as I was studying to, at some point, I felt like I went into the deep end of the pool and didn't know how to get out of it. There was just so many, so much wealth of information here and so many blessed things, and I just want to encourage you in a word this morning as you walk through these. So if you'd follow with me, I know uh, Michael read the first three verses, but I'm going to pick back up in 28 and connect them here. First John 2, 28 says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You know, being raised in a missionary family and being raised on a mission field, I was not surrounded by a lot of traditional hymns. We sang songs, obviously, as the French did, and some of those we might recognize. But every time I'd come back on furlough and, and travel in the States and even as a missionary family myself and raising support, we've been in many churches and heard many hymns and were blessed by many of them. And I find myself still today humming along some of those hymns and being blessed. But I did notice a common theme amongst a number of these songs. A lot of them talked about heaven. Perhaps a number of songs come to your mind. I jotted down a few. I thought it was interesting just as a reminder, and I stopped after a while, but I'll fly away in the sweet by and by. We're marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. When the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. When we all get to heaven, in the mansions bright and blessed, he'll prepare for us a place, and soon his beauty will behold, soon the pearly gates will open, and we shall tread the streets of gold. Beautiful land, no sad goodbyes. And one final one, I've got a mansion over the hillside. I want a gold one that's silver lined. My wife said, did it really say that? I said, yes, it does. <laughs> I did notice common denominator in these songs, a lot of gold, a lot of mansions. There's other songs, plenty of others that talk about the banquet table and a lot of eating. So... We, we find joy, and rightfully so. We find joy and hope in the thought of heaven. We find fortitude in knowing that the dead in Christ shall rise first. Thus are the words of comfort that, God, that Paul gives. We find comfort in knowing that absent from the body is present 
to be present with the Lord? How many of you have found such consolation in losing a loved one and resting in those promises? We find consolation in knowing that there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, no more temptations, no more battles against the flesh, against sin, against the world. But as joyful as all these promises prove to be, they are eclipsed by the greatest subject of joy that we have. Our greatest joy, our greatest prize, our greatest treasure, our greatest gift is found in Jesus Christ himself. Not only being in the presence of Christ, but these, these words that, that have been, I've been just meditating on these words, but being conformed to his likeness. One commentator said, it's futile to even try to explain what that means. To try, what does it mean to be in his likeness? Romans 8.28 talks about, I guess I should put my clicker out. Romans 8.28, we know, and these are some of our favorite verses, right? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform us and transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The promise of heaven rests, first and foremost, in the privilege and the blessing and the hope of knowing that we will be with our Savior and will be transformed in his likeness. Now, a little bit of context here, because the Apostle John is hard to take a text. You take a few verses here and you extrapolate them out of John, and he has the entire context here. But just as a reminder, and it's important here for us, that the Apostle John is dealing with a lot of false teachers, and we'll see that in some of his responses. We know what they believed, some of what they believed in a way. We know that because it's kind of like listening to a phone conversation, and you're hearing one side of the conversation. Well, that's kind of what we get with the Apostle John. We hear one side of the conversation, but we understand the problems that were on the other side, and some of what John tells us is, is explained here as well. We like John because he speaks truth, he speaks straight, he, he does so with a shepherd's heart. He does so with a genuine love for God, a genuine love for God's people. You see that in his passion. You see that in his plea that he gives in these verses. But John is facing these false teachers, and here are some of the things that we know about these false teachers. One, they denied Christ. They denied that Jesus was the Christ who came in the flesh. As such, he didn't die to deal with sin. They didn't receive nor remain in the apostles' teaching. We know that they loved the world and had a low view of sin. You can read through John and see these things brought out. They claimed to have a fellowship with Christ, and yet they walked in darkness. They basically taught that you were free to live any way you wanted with no need of a Savior, given that there were no sin to deal with and therefore no guilt to worry about. But, you know, interestingly enough, the Apostle John doesn't consider these, these men carnal believers he says they're unsaved people. And actually, I enjoyed, um, I read a um, commentary or an introduction to this text by Alistair Begg. He says, these false teachers were spreading a gospel 
that offers much but demands little. A gospel full of promises but few demands. Not much has changed, really, has it? Many are out there promoting a gospel that offers much but demands little or requires little. We have an entire generation of professing believers who were led to believe that all you have to do is come to Jesus without picking up his cross. Obedience is just subjective. Forgiveness is conditional. Loving is limited. Church is whatever you want it to be. Purity is old-fashioned, but fear not. A simple prayer will get you into heaven and will provide you this get-out-of-hell-free card. These false teachers had embedded the church. They were sowing seeds of doubt. They were sowing seeds of confusion. In chapter 2, verse 19, as you walk through the text, in chapter 2, verse 19, he says, These men went out from us because they were never of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. In other words, it was good that they separated themselves from us, so at least we're clear as to where they stand spiritually. Sometimes it's better for someone to break away from the fellowship so there's clarity on where they are spiritually. Verse 22 in chapter 2 again. He says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Verse 26 again in chapter 2. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So he's coming to these believers who are surrounded and there, there's these embedded false teachers who are offering them a false gospel. One that requires... Very little, but offers yet so much. So John's response to this need and John's response to these false teachers is actually found probably in one of the key words that you find throughout chapters 2 through chapter 5. 32 times he's going to repeat the verb to know. 32 times he's going to repeat to the believers. Here he starts in chapter 2 verse 3. By saying, and by this we know. By this we know. 32 times they repeat. Here's what you should know. And here's why we know it. Why? He wanted them to be affirmed. One, he wanted them to remain true to the teaching that had been given to them, that had been received. And he wanted them to remain true to that teaching. He wants the believers to know. Not just hope, not just wish, not just perhaps. But this we know. And it, is, it reminds us. Well, we're facing plenty of false teachers today. The answer is not to get into some kind of intellectual debate with them. The answer is not trying to prove things by science or by history or by logic or by reasoning. The answer is still going to be, here's what we know and here's why we know it, because the Word of God tells us so. Amen. The Word of God is, is all we have, but more than that, it is all we need. We believe in the inherency of the Word. We also believe in the sufficiency of Scripture and it's a blessing to be in a church environment where the Word of God is raised up, stood on. And this is how John's going to answer the false teachers that are sowing doubt, sowing confusion in the minds and the hearts of believers. And we could sense his excitement as we're reading the text. Because I've read it so many times, I was just thinking through it. But we could sense his excitement, especially in verse 1 in chapter 3, when he says, see, look, what love is this? What manner of love is this? And he's affirming this in the life of these believers. He leads up to this one pivotal moment and pivotal statement that says, we will be like him. Oh, to be like him. 
But as, as we get there, I want to underline and bring to light four blessings that lead up to this, or three blessings that lead up to this fourth one. First in verse 28, oh, to abide in him. Why? So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. The, the blessing of abiding in him. A number of these false teachers had left. They had denied Christ, had turned their backs on the apostles' teaching. But you, John says, remain. There's an imperative here. Abide. Remain. Stay. There's a command. Abiding in Christ is evidence of resting in the finished work of Christ. The evidence of true faith, of lasting faith, one that remains, one that abides until when? Until his appearance. Four times, we'll see this in just a few minutes, four times he reminds them of his appearance, of his appearing, of his coming. I think there are a few things more grieving than watching someone who has claimed Christ and walked away from the teaching that had been given to them. So in the midst of this confusion, in the midst of these false teachers, he tells abide in Christ, remain in the teaching that has been given to you. Abiding in Christ reflects a personal reality or a positional reality manifested in a relational existence, meaning there's the positional truth that we remain in Christ, but then there's this relational existence, and then the two are inseparable. That word abide comes up over and over in his teaching, chapter 2, verse 24. He says, let what, you've, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. And what you heard from the beginning abides in you. Then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Chapter 3, verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, but no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love, not love, abides in, in death. We see the blessing of abiding in him and the blessing of abiding in confidence. He uses the term confidence here. Confidence is not a feeling of entitlement. It's not a feeling of walking around saying, here's what, what God owes me. Here's not what I deserve. Confidence is not something that we have to offer Christ, because all we have to offer Christ is filthy rags. I can, recall, I can recall coming off the plane, visiting the States. I traveled back by myself, and I sat next to this lovely young French lady talking about Americans are so prideful. I said, well, maybe confidence is the right word. No, arrogant. I said, well, we had this little discussion, and when I got off the plane... We went to the, you know, we wait in line for the passport check, and here's this American flag about the size of that wall. And they all, I was like, okay, well, confident. Confident, not because we have something to give, but confidence is defined as, as boldness, yes, as assurance, yes, as, as freedom of speech, which means the ability to. Proclaim Christ, confidence in knowing and in proclaiming Christ. Confidence means, yes, I, I know. And he wants them to have confidence in what they've been taught. He wants them to have confidence in their abiding in truth. Confidence comes from abiding. There's no reason for anyone to feel confident at the thought of his return if they're living in sin. 
as you abide in Christ, we can be confident as return. Confident, he says, in what? He says, and not ashamed. He says, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from his, him in shame at his coming. Abiding in him leads to confidence in him and in his work. There will be a time, of course, where we'll fall short. There'll be the shame of sin that, sur- that will surface. But in those cases, confession and repentance is needed. And if you're not abiding in Christ, if you're not anchored in truth, you will lose hope. You know, it's amazing that how many times people who believers or professing believers, when they live in sin, the first thing they'll come up to mind is they, they start questioning their salvation. Of course you are. You're not abiding in Him. You're living in sin. You're living contrary to what you've claimed to be true. And as such, they, they begin doubting. And the answer to that doubting is not, well, you just need to rededicate your life. The answer to that doubting is you need to confess and repent and walk in truth. The blessing of abiding in his righteousness. Verse 29, it says, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. The believer can stand unashamed because he is clothed in his righteousness. I think Isaiah 61 is probably one of the most beautiful verses in this. Isaiah says, I greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Walking in righteousness is a turning away from unrighteousness towards what he says in chapter 2, verse 1, towards the righteous one. The path of righteousness is a narrow, but it is a salvific path. The confidence mentioned here is not because you and I lived a righteous life, for none is righteous, but because you've placed your faith in the righteous one. Like John Stott says, a person's righteousness is thus the evidence of his new birth, not the cause or condition of it. There will be in that day those that instead of being confident will be ashamed, will be fearful, who instead of being clothed in righteousness will be filled with nakedness, seeking a place to hide from his presence, but will find none. They will shrink from him. MacArthur says, what a sad picture to envision. Men running, trying to run from his presence. But for us on that day at his appearing... Our hope will not have been in vain. Our faith will not have been misplaced. And the work of Christ on the cross will prove to be more than sufficient. He is and will be my source of confidence. And in him I can stand before God. I can stand forgiven. I can stand innocent. I can stand confident that his righteousness and his alone will satisfy a holy and a righteous God. So the Apostle John begins by by telling them, oh, oh, what a blessing it is to abide in him, rest in him, remain in him, in his righteousness. And then he picks up in chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, to be loved by him. 
You can't read these verses without being emotionally stirred by what God has accomplished and what he's done for us. John says it with such passion because he said there, he says, Oh, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. Oh, what a blessing to be loved by him. We are loved with a conspicuous love. It's, it's an evident love. It's manifest. It's visible. It's tangible. It's interesting that what's brought out here is that this verb is in the second person plural because it's designed not as, a, as an individual see, well, you see individual concept, but that all may see. It's a love that's evident to all, manifested to all. It becomes a reality for all to see. We are in love with this agape love, which is, of course, a word that we're familiar with. An agape love, a, a deliberate love, an intentional love, a willful love, chosen, given, not out of obligation. So he, he, he tells the believers, oh, what a blessing it is to abide in him and oh, to be loved by him. We are loved with a divine love. Now, some of your translations might say, you have a New King James, and King James, I think, says what manner of love. ESV says what kind of love. NSB says how great a love. I like the description of manner or kind of love because what he's describing here is a love that is foreign to them. Something from a, the term is actually used to describe something from another country or another nation. This is love as seen nowhere else that is that is not comparable to anything known to man. John is saying, what kind of love is this? Well, he's saying that this is love that is man can, there's no comparable love known to man. You can sense the, even the excitement in John's voice. See, look, what kind of love is this? How great a love is this? The kind that is not seen amongst men, this glorious, this measureless love. It carries such a qualitative character in one end and a quantitative force on the other. This, this, this great and mighty love, measureless love of God. John Stott again says this, The Father's love is so unearthly, so foreign to this world, that John wonders what country it may come from. So this love has nothing in common with human love. And it's the reason why he says, following this in verse 1 again, he says that we should be called children of God. Why? The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. The world does not know this love, and unless it knows God, it cannot understand that love. There's so much confusion today over the, what love means, what love is. There's so much perversion over it. It's like, it's like every day there's a new revealed perversion of what love is. I unfortunately discovered what demisexual means. I mean, demisexual is someone who, who loves the person they're emotionally attached to. So no matter who it is, we're, kind of, we're continually trying to redefine what these things mean. And he describes here a love that only a person who's known God can understand, which also means that only someone who knows this love can also love in this way as well. Love prompts the Father to give us the gift of adoption. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. This love prompts the Father to give us the gift of adoption. 
the short clause that follows here, he says, as, he says um, and so we are. That short clause serves to reinforce the preceding description of the Father's love, meaning the Father's intended gift of love achieves its purpose in making us his children. The intended purpose of such love is that we would become his children. We're loved with a divine love. We're loved with a fatherly love. The title here, again, the love, what, since what kind of love the Father has given to us. The title Father is used to emphasize the begotten nature of those who are called children of God. As you read through the text, you'll see quickly that the word children is used quite often, and John uses it to describe because of his endearing nature with his, with his flock. Thirteen times it is used here. The first time it's used in chapter 2, verse 1, when John calls the believers, My little children, we see him lovingly admonishing the believers as a father would his children. But in chapter 3, verse 1, he switches to a different word, still translated children, but he switches to a different word, to use the word children of God. What a powerful statement here. Can we really understand what it means? Truly. John was using, John and describing the word children to his believers, to his followers, to his sheep, was the word children that describes the relationship of a teacher to his disciples. But when he switches over, they understood very well the change. When he switched over in chapter 3, verse 1, he, called, he used the word children of God. He used a different word that describes a, a filial relationship, an offspring of. It wasn't the same term that he used when he used the word children in chapter 3, verse 1. It's the same word that the term born is introduced in verse 29 of chapter 2 for the first time. In other words, he's describing a, an offspring. The term born is introduced there with the unfolding of this truth then in verses 1 through 3. So the children is, has three, two implications at least. One, a child implies birth. It implies birth. It implies growing. It implies maturing. And finally, it will imply completeness in Christ. A child presents a present reality. You see the term used several times here. He's describing this in verses 1 through 3 as a present reality. He says, it is, he says, we are God's children when? Now. And what will be has not yet appeared, but we shall see him as he is in everyone. Finish up verse 3. I'll come back to that in just a moment. But he describes the present reality of being a child of God new life, and then that of a future expectation as well. We're children of God. Being designated a child of God signifies our possessing the defining characteristics of that person. The child's identity is a settled reality. And once determined, it remains unchanged since the birth is strictly a divine act, one that demonstrates a desire for a permanent relationship. And using that term and describing it in this way, he describes the believer taking on the characteristics of God, and he describes the desire of a permanent relationship on the part of God. Can we even begin to understand what that means? Can we even begin to understand what a blessing it is? See what kind of love the Father has given to us we are loved with an unmerited favor. It's a gift. 
It's been gifted to us. The gift is as complete as the love that's been given. This completeness is, indicates the, the all-sufficiency of the gift, meaning that it's complete in the here and complete in the now, and it gives us the ability to live our lives in a way pleasing to him in the hope of assurance that he will complete this task at his appearing. It is intentional, and it is transformational. His love comes as a gift, unmerited, fully a testament of his grace. John speaks of the blessing of being transformed. Oh, to be transformed by him. In chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, twice he brings to their attention that this is a present reality. In verse 1, he says, and so we are, or in fact we are. In chapter 2, he says, we are God's children now. He wants them to understand this is not something you're just hoping for in the future. This is a present reality There's the immediacy of transformation. Immediacy because there is an immediate presence and there is an eager expectation surrounding this reality. Not all translations have those final words in verse 1 where it says, and so we are. But clearly the message is that though he is calling on believers to be aware and prepared for his his appearing, there is a present reality and a present expectation where spiritual birth has taken place, spiritual growth and spiritual transformation takes place as well. And Christ-likeness is promised as an eschatological event. So there's a future event in us being transformed in his likeness, but there's a present reality that we're his children now, and we're being transformed in his image. 2 Corinthians 5 speaks to that when he says that if anyone is in Christ, he is what? He is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, all things have what become new. We are God's children now. There is this present reality that transformation in his likeness has begun. Present transformation brings immediate separation from the world. That's why he describes right there the reason why the world doesn't know us. Identifying ourselves with Christ, abiding in him, being a recipient of his love, begins this process of being a, a child of God which brings upon transformation later, no, now. An immediate separation from the world. Immediate understanding that we have nothing in common with what the world has to offer. We see the, the gift of transformation. The gift of justification and sanctification. With justification comes sanctification. We're not two separate actions on the part of the Spirit of God. One does not exist without the other. Justification changes the inner person. Glorification is our expectation of things to come. But sanctification begins at justification and completes itself in glorification. All that to say that what has begun and the work God has begun in us, He is working through us now to shape us and to form us in His image. It is not just a future expectation. It is not just a future hope. It is a present reality that belongs to all those who claim Christ, who claim to know him, who are born of him, who are his children. And in doing so, he's given us the power to live our lives accordingly. Second Peter 1 says he's given us his divine power, has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us by glory and virtue. 
He said then a little bit later, he said that through these you may be what? You may be partakers of the divine nature. He's enabled us to be partakers of the divine nature. How, how beautiful is that truth? And in this we see the joy of transformation. The joy of transformation. Joy knowing that the present sanctification will serve to make me more like him. Everything I experience in life as a believer serves towards my sanctification. It shapes me into who I am. It defines what I believe. It develops my patience. It tests my test and strengthens my faith. It may, I may not see it in the moment, but as I look back, the road traveled becomes clear, and I see the hand of God, and I see his goodness, and I see his gracious hand. You know, too many times we resist that process. Oh, we understand, or at least we believe, we've read, we've heard that there's going to be this moment where we'll be transformed in his likeness and we'll be with him and we'll rejoice in that. But we forget that in the here and now, he's shaping us to be in his likeness. And far too often, I resist this process. And instead of embracing this transformation, instead of embracing the sanctification, I, I push back, I lament. I complain, I attempt to avoid, I attempt to, I, and I pray that God would remove this from me. Oh, I should not lose sight of God's sanctifying work in my life. As I resist, I get frustrated, I get angry, I miss the blessing, and I miss the joy of what God is wanting to do in my life. What I am experiencing today and the trials I go through and allowing him and allowing the word to shape my life, to shape my thought process and bending to it, humbling myself to it, being obedient, that is all part of the blessing of what God is doing and creating me and making me in his image. Instead of pushing back on it and saying, well, that's just, this is uncomfortable. I don't want to make that decision. That's, oh, but I, I want glory. I want glorification. I don't want sanctification. What, what do you think gets me there? And actually, instead of pushing back on it, to embrace it and saying, Lord, this, this is painful. This is difficult. Making this decision is difficult. I don't want to forgive. I want to be obedient. I know what you say, but... And instead of resisting this, allowing him to do his sanctifying work and seeing it as the blessing of being part of Blessing of being owed to be transformed by him. Joy comes from knowing that real change is possible. I know you think that when you see the world and you see the world pursuing after things that make them joyful, and you know it's not going to make them happy. Because they, they try to seek change by Plastic surgery, by a new diet, by new friends, by new discovered freedoms, by excess. Joy comes from knowing that real change is possible. There is joy in, know there's joy in knowing that God is at work in me by his grace so that real change finally becomes possible. The possibility of transformation is the essence of hope. People who come hopeless become hopeless because they think what? Nothing will change. 
Marriages fall apart. Why? Because somehow they think the other spouse will never change. One of the greatest challenges in counseling is to show someone that God can transform and change if you will allow him to do so. The possibility of transformation is the essence of hope. Joy comes in knowing that we will morph indeed. Like Romans 8, 29, right? Those he foreknew, he also predestined to be, to be what? To be conformed, having the same form as this metaphorosis that takes place that in the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. The joy of knowing that there's transformation the joy of knowing and the beauty and the blessing of knowing that we will be like him is knowing that that process has begun the moment that I became a child of God and him allowing me to be shaped in his likeness. Joy knowing that I just don't do things Christ would have me do, but I find myself wanting to do them. Whereas I was, was drawn to the world, now I find myself drawn to him. What a gift from God. The Apostle John is making this, this distinction because of these men who had left them to go into the world. He says, listen, they were never part of us. Philippians 2 takes all its meaning in this context where he says, My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The joy of allowing him through obedience to work and obedience and faith to become a useful vessel in God's hand. There is what I call here pseudo-transformation. Pseudo-transformation is whenever we have a newfound believer and change is not expected. And if change is not expected, then what's pursued is this exterior or this outer change and not this inner transformation. Pseudo-transformation happens when inner change is replaced with outer change. It often comes in the form of legalism. These outer spiritual markers that we place in our lives, there's no real transformation. There is a pseudo-transformation when in reality, real inner change is needed to take place. Paul highlights our responsibility as believers. As we just read in Philippians 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The context that Paul is talking about is not speaking about them contributing to their salvation, but about following Jesus' example, not so that we will be converted, but that so we'll, we will be more like Christ. Paul's argument is that we are to pursue godliness because God is at work in us for godliness. And there lies his encouragement. I would encourage you, you know, as we, as we see something else, I think... Uh, Alistair Begg said something else about this text. He says, 1 John is a very meaty book, or very meaty epistle. He says many people begin to read it, and they can't digest it, and they, they quit halfway through. 
and it is very meaty. But it, there's such a blessing knowing that we have the privilege of being, having the hope of being like Christ, of being transformed in his likeness. Not some pseudo-transformation. Don't settle for some pseudo-transformation where you're, you're, you're following a set of, of guidelines, of rules and regulations that you think make you more spiritual than others. But this inner transformation that we might grow in his likeness. John understands and John recognizes that even saved believers will not be perfect. But the expected result of salvation is a life that grows to become more and more like Christ. It doesn't mean an immediate change to perfection. God loves us enough to forgive us our sins and to help us overcome them. It comes to this final blessing, if you will. Oh, to be like him. Christ first appeared to deal with sin. 1 John chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, as you know that he appeared in order to take away sins so that no one who sins continually has ever seen him or knows him. So he, he debunks already what these false teachers were saying about sin. He says no, his first appearance was here to deal with sin and Christ will now appear a second time to make us like him. It will be just as real as his first appearing. I love with the assurance he says this. He says it four times in the few verses that we read. Twice in verse 28 of chapter 2. Twice in chapter 3, verse 2. He talks about that we know that what? He will appear. You know, the world is going on about their lives as if Christ was never going to return. Many believers are going on about their lives as if he was not going to appear. Jesus somehow is a story of a man some 2,000 years ago who lived, but he's nothing more than that for the world, but he's much more than that for us. And so when I, when I face the challenges that life sets before me, and when I struggle, and we do struggle, when we struggle to forgive, we struggle to do what is right, we struggle with sin, be not mistaken, he will appear. When I struggle with doubts, I struggle with fear, with pain, the blessing of knowing the truth, that he, he, he keeps on reminding believers, he will appear. Why? Because they were surrounded by people that were saying he'll not come back because he never was the Christ. There are many people out there that are saying exactly that. Ah, who is this God that is slow in appearing? And believers can be tempted to question and doubt as well. But when he does and when he appears, understanding that we are not lacking will be filled and will be complete. One verse I've always enjoyed is Hebrews 9.27. There's two parts of it. One, I used to use verse 27 a lot in, in witnessing because uh, Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed unto man who wants to die, but after this the judgment. So 
the witness of one man, he says, well, you know, that's, I, meant to say, I want to say something about that. I don't believe in judgment. He says, well, I'll believe, I mean, because he's like these other false teachers, I don't believe in, in, in a God that's going to come back and judge man. Because there's, I mean, there's no such thing as sin, really. But I love the verse 28 for us believers. Verse 28 of Hebrews 9 says, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, and to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time. Isn't that a beautiful? Amen. The beauty, the confidence of knowing he will appear. And as real and true that his first appearance was a reality, his second one will be just as much of a reality. And we don't know much about exactly what this promise is entail, that we'll be like him. But what we, we do know two things. One, he says, we know that we shall be like him. He reminds the believers that our transformation will be in his likeness. We're not going to be made into little gods. We're looking at spiritual unity and complete identity in Christ, but not little divine beings. We'll be, some, we'll be similar to him in holiness and in resurrected bodies, and our face-to-face encounter with the risen Lord will complete our glorification process as we are transformed in his likeness. Yes, this final state remains a mystery. We do know... And what we do know is that when Jesus returns, our transformation will be made complete. Chapter 3, verse 2, depicts the immediacy of our transformation. We will be in perfect fellowship with the Father and with the Son and with one another. And we'll reflect his character perfectly. And then we'll understand the fullness of Philippians 1, 6 that we enjoy quoting he who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. So he gives a few concluding thoughts here in his verse 3. He says, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. First, the term everyone, he actually used that term as well in verse um, 29. Everyone who practices righteousness. Verse 3, he picks it up again, everyone who thus hopes in him. There's, there's not, you know, most of you, almost everyone, know everyone who is a child of God, everyone who thus hopes in him, purifies himself as he is pure. There is no such thing as a child of God who does not seek, who does not desire to be like Christ to some degree in his life. Now I know the first thing that comes to mind, but what if someone, you know, we... We look for all these gray areas that John just wipes away. There's no gray with John. If you're a child of God, you're going to desire to be like Christ. I understand. And John addresses this. There'll be moments of failure. There'll be moments of weakness. There'll be moments where we'll fall short, surely, and we do daily. But our heart's desire is that we want to reflect our Father. 
And our, our, our hope is not just in, in him and his appearing. And though his appearing is what we eagerly await, our hope is that when he appears, we're going to be like him. But that transformation takes place at the moment of the birth of that child. The Apostle John completes his thoughts here by saying everyone who possesses this hope purifies himself. Speaks of a life which pursues purity. The believer, the child of God, pursues purity, pursues holiness as she awaits the return of Christ. He says, well, everyone who does hopes in him purifies himself. It's a personal, individual response before a holy God. The closer the individual walk with Christ, the more aware one is of his need to cleanse himself. The more we purify our thoughts, our minds, our actions, the more Christ-like we become, and the more Christ-like we become, the more eager we await his return. A believer who no longer is eagerly awaiting for Christ needs to step back one step and realize he's not been pursuing Christ-likeness. And then he says, as he is pure, his unchanging nature guarantees his eternal purity. And since the Son is absolutely pure, and we will be like him when he returns, we must strive to purify ourselves until that blessed moment where we will be like him. Oh, to be like him, we must first abide in him. Oh, to abide in him. Oh, to be loved by him. Oh, to be transformed by him. And at the appearing, to be like him. This promise to be like Christ at his appearing goes beyond our grasp. You can read 50 different commentators on this, and they're, they're all trying to get a handle on what it means. They all try to grasp, what, what, what does it mean by that? How can we... What we need to understand, what we need to build our hope on, is one, is to answer John's imperative to abide in Christ and remain in him. To trust in his righteousness alone. To be these recipients of God's love that we become children of God and to thrive and to desire and to pursue the work that he's accomplishing in our life as trans forming us and changing us into his likeness. So yes, this promise to be like Christ at his appearing goes beyond our grasp. But let me say this. If you don't know the joy of abiding in him, I would invite you to surrender to him. Because the only way you're going to be able to stand before a holy God, unashamed and confident, is your road and clothed in, his, in the righteousness of Christ. If you claim Christ, but you've not been pursuing Christ, you've not been concerned with being transformed in his likeness, you don't need rededication. You need confession. You need repentance. And walk in a manner worthy. I mentioned in the beginning all these hymns that are, speak of heaven so beautifully. But there is one hymn, I'm going to end with these words right here. I'm going to read just, I'm not going to sing it to you. But I will read. Yeah, Ashton. 
there is a hymn that is a beautiful hymn. I've been, boy, I've been annoying my family singing this hymn it's because it's been in my, in my mind. It's called, Oh, to be like him. Oh, to be like thee, blessed Redeemer. This is my constant longing and prayer. Gladly I forfeit all of earth's treasures. Jesus, thy perfect likeness to wear. Oh, to be like thee. Oh, to be like thee. Oh, to be like thee. Blessed Redeemer, pure as thou art. Come in thy sweetness. Come in thy fullness, stamp thine own image deep in my heart. Well, Father, we read through your word and we're, we're amazed, we're blessed. I, I can think of several times this past week, I was just moved reading through this text and reading through my notes, thinking about a, the beauty and blessing of being able to abide in you to rest in you. Oh, to be, oh, to abide in you, Lord. To be clothed with your righteousness. To stand before you unashamed. Not because of what I can bring, but because, Lord, your righteousness is sufficient. Oh, Lord, to be loved by you. A love that the world doesn't understand. A love that we can barely grasp ourselves. A love that goes beyond anything that man has known. Given to us. And this love that ultimately has, finds its fulfillment and purpose in calling us children of God. And Lord, the beauty of being transformed in your likeness. Lord, why is it I resist the work you do in my life because it's painful, because I don't like it. Instead of keeping my eyes on your appearing, knowing on that day I'll be in your likeness. Oh, Lord, thank you for the blessing of being transformed and the hope that comes in lasting and eternal transformation. And finally, Lord, just thank you that there's a promise of your appearing. Lord, what would we do if we walked this earth not confident that you would appear? Our lives, Lord, are built on that promise, on that hope that as you appear, you'll transform us into your likeness. Lord, I pray today that if there's an unbeliever here, that they would find refuge in you, that they would run to you and put down all their filthy rags and take on your righteousness and claim your righteousness alone. If we'd have believers here today, Lord, that they would examine their life. And if they have not been pursuing you, if their life is not marked by a desire to be like you, that you would break their heart and their desire and give them, Lord, a desire for things that are holy, and pure. We thank you, Lord, for the blessing of your word. We thank you, Lord, for these blessed truths. In your name we pray. Amen.